The People's Constitution, the path to empowerment of Australians in a 21st century democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Chapter 8, Part 5, Essential Number 4D, Elimination of Racism in Australian Law. There are many ways in which the culture, demography and political arrangements of 21st century Australia bear no resemblance to the idea of the nation its founders attempted to establish by formulating the Constitution in 1901. But the most obvious mismatch is between the original idea of Australia as a white colony subject to a Victorian-era monarch and the post-war multicultural nation that we became. The drafters of the Constitution could hardly have foreseen that their racist attitudes and the laws that underpinned them would become as irrelevant as they did to modern Australia, especially to the economic prosperity we came to enjoy by opening our doors to immigration. Nevertheless, the racist provisions in the Constitution have lingered and continue to cast a shadow over law in Australia that has held Indigenous nations back from achieving equality in health, well-being and political influence. Those provisions also threaten the political and economic equality of non-Indigenous people. But this is more a theoretical threat since constitutional lawyers have found that, quote, there are no laws on the federal statute book, nor is it apparent that there ever have been, that apply the race's power to groups other than Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Unquote. As such, it seems Australian lawmakers have thus far reserved their practical application of discrimination in law uniquely for Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders. Since Federation, at least 35 pieces of legislation have been enacted nationwide which affect Indigenous Australians. The racist provisions in the Constitution are mainly located in sections 25 and 51 as follows. Section 25 is headed Provisions as to Races Disqualified from Voting. It says, quote, For the purposes of the last section, if by the law of any state all persons of any race are disqualified from voting at elections for the more numerous House of Parliament of the state, then in reckoning the number of the people of the state or of the Commonwealth, persons of that race resident in that state shall not be counted. Unquote. The other racist power is headed Section 51, Legislative Powers of the Parliament. It says, quote, The Parliament shall, subject to this Constitution, have power to make laws for the peace, order and good government of the Commonwealth with respect to, 26, the people of any race for whom it is deemed necessary to make special laws. Unquote. As constitutional lawyers Megan Davis and George Williams have noted, the presence of these sections in the Constitution means that, quote, Australia is now the only nation in the world with a Constitution that contains a clause that empowers a national parliament to discriminate against a group on the basis of race, unquote. 
Decades of debate on this matter have resulted in broad acceptance of the need to remove the racist provisions, but the debate has not resolved the issue of how to remove them so that we do not end up reintroducing the possibility of adverse discrimination or cutting off access by Indigenous peoples to direct positive assistance from the federal government. Attempts to solve this problem culminated in 2012 in a proposal from an expert panel on the recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the Constitution, established by the Gillard Government, to insert a new section 116A as follows. Quote, Section 116A, Prohibition of Racial Discrimination. 1. The Commonwealth, a state or territory, shall not discriminate on the grounds of race, colour or ethnic or national origin. 2. Subsection 1 does not preclude the making of laws or measures for the purpose of overcoming disadvantage, ameliorating the effects of past discrimination or protecting the cultures, language or heritage of any group. Unquote. However, the views of the Indigenous community on the utility of this provision shifted after the High Court in the case of Maloney versus the Queen ruled that a Queensland law prohibiting Indigenous people from possessing alcohol was discriminatory but nevertheless permissible under the Racial Discrimination Act. Given the High Court's unwillingness to challenge the Parliament's primacy in determining what can justify racial discrimination and that there can be a justification, it should therefore not be surprising that those who attended the First Nations regional dialogues for the Uluru law reforms did not consider it worth prioritising the repeal or replacement of the racist power. According to Megan Davis and George Williams, quote, this was because the alternative forms of wording can never prevent racially discriminatory adverse laws. Whether it is a people's power or a subject matter power, or whether there is a preambular statement that seeks to confine the power to beneficial laws, using such words as advancement or for the betterment, there is no ironclad guarantee that can be made that the power cannot be used for adverse purposes. Consequently, at Uluru, it was determined that for the racist power, the change, that is, a new section 116A, is no better than the status quo. As a result, Indigenous people did not prioritise amending or repealing the racist power as a meaningful form of constitutional recognition. Unquote. In short, Indigenous nations were left high and dry again, this time by the frame of mind of the High Court and its apparent inability under the current constitution to protect them from racial discrimination. However, if we come back to the fact that there is broad acceptance that the racist provisions should be removed, it is incumbent on Australians to find a way to safely remove them, particularly given the high likelihood that there would be advantages for Indigenous and non-Indigenous alike. To remove the racist powers safely, it is likely that we would have to question the above contention by Davis and Williams that, quote, there is no ironclad guarantee that can be made that the power of new beneficially expressed laws cannot be used for adverse purposes, unquote. I will leave aside any scepticism that ironclad guarantees may be provided by laws, 
hitherto being of the same persuasion as Samuel Butler that, in law, nothing is certain but the expense, especially when laws are made under a constitution which provides little or no guidance on some matters for those required to issue judgments on what a particular law might or might not legitimately guarantee for an affected race. However, if the objective in making amendments to the Constitution is to seek out the safest course of action for protection of the people to whom the laws made under it shall apply, then we might contemplate the possibility that a statement of human rights might offer judges a basis for their judgments, a basis that guides them on what could or would be adverse to the interests of the people for whom the law is made. First Nations people in the regional dialogues for the Uluru Statement did not warm to the idea of judges deciding what is and isn't in their interests. For them, the Maloney case, quote, elevated concerns that the scope of Section 116A would be determined entirely by the justices of the High Court. Attendees raised the issue that a non-discrimination clause deferred decision-making to justices who may never have set foot in an Indigenous community and yet would determine what is in the best interests of Indigenous women and children. It was also thought that if justices were going to defer to democratically elected representatives, as they did in Maloney, then Section 116A did not amount to a sufficient protection of Indigenous peoples from racial discrimination. Unquote. This is a valid objection, but it nevertheless provides a clue as to how the problem might be solved. If the problem is that it is dangerous to delete the race's provisions from the Constitution without inserting a clause like Section 116A to prohibit adverse racial discrimination, and if there is a desire to avoid any downsides of a clause along those lines that may arise from judges or a parliament for that matter, taking it upon themselves to determine what is in the best interests of Indigenous people, then conferral of a right of self-determination on Indigenous and non-Indigenous people alike would be likely to provide a means by which judges could limit the risk of discrimination, either by the courts or parliaments, against any particular set of people in the population, Indigenous and non-Indigenous. In other words, any law made by a parliament that denies what Indigenous people determine for themselves as being in their best interests is not in their best interests and should be disallowed by the courts. The approach here would change the basis on which courts may seek to provide protections to First Nations people from discrimination by a parliament, such as the discrimination that occurred in the Northern Territory intervention or in the Maloney case mentioned above. At present, the courts would appear to assume that they have no basis in law that they can rely on to protect Indigenous peoples from adverse discrimination by a parliament. But a right of the Australian people to self-determination in the Constitution may provide that basis, inasmuch as people of a particular race who are adversely affected by a discriminatory law would, if necessary, be able to argue that the law is abusive of that right. Conversely, they could argue that a law may only be proved lawfully discriminatory if the racial community affected by it decided for themselves that it was in their best interest. Such an arrangement for this degree of self-determination could be facilitated if a First Nations voice were enshrined in the Constitution 
and if local Indigenous voice vehicles were established according to a design satisfactory to First Nations peoples. This machinery of an Indigenous voice, established alongside an enshrined right to self-determination for all, would create an avenue by which the courts may, at the very least, refer any adversely discriminatory law back to the Parliament for review via a democratic voice process. This in itself would create a new framework which would appropriately limit the capacity of both the Parliament and the judiciary to decide what is in the best interests of Indigenous people. It would provide a means by which the courts could justify their decisions consistent with fundamental human rights laws. By this means, we could finally put away the long outdated and now plainly preposterous notion that authorities like parliaments or courts have a right to decide what is in the interests of any peoples on the basis of race. Under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and its attendant covenants, neither parliaments nor courts have that right, although they have carried on as if they do for decades in their debates as to which one of them is more entitled than the other to paternalistically determine the interests of Indigenous peoples. The preferable course from this point, given that there is now little, if any, support for racism in lawmaking, is to set Indigenous groups up so that they can organise themselves as they see fit to determine their best interests. The above suggestion for safe deletion of the racist provisions in the Constitution may not, at least initially, satisfy First Nations that the federal government would still be able to make laws that positively benefit them so that past injustices can be redressed and the adverse discrimination they have experienced can be eliminated in future. However, were we to contemplate inserting a national agreement on human rights and obligations into the Constitution in the form proposed in Chapter 6, that would confer on the Parliament a constitutional obligation to uphold the rights of Indigenous people by making beneficial laws that advance their interests sufficiently to address inequalities and past injustices. For instance, Article 1 of the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination makes such positive discrimination lawful as follows. I will quote Clause 4. Special measures taken for the sole purpose of securing adequate advancement of certain racial or ethnic groups or individuals requiring such protection as may be necessary in order to ensure such groups or individuals equal enjoyment or exercise of human rights and fundamental freedoms shall not be deemed racial discrimination, provided, however, that such measures do not, as a consequence, lead to the maintenance of separate rights for different racial groups and that they shall not be continued after the objectives for which they were taken have been achieved. Unquote. And of course, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the UNDRIP, confers on governments and Indigenous peoples a capacity to devise laws which benefit the Indigenous members of the nation. In particular, Articles 21, 22, 23 and 46 make it clear that positive discrimination to ameliorate the inequalities and injustices Indigenous people have suffered from colonisation and dispossession of their lands, territories and resources is a legitimate form of human rights protection and is not discriminatory. Indeed, 
Had Articles 21 and 22 been adhered to at the time of the Northern Territory intervention, although Australia had not signed the UNDRIP at that time, a far better culturally attuned remedy could have been developed, simply because it would have required the government to work with the Indigenous community to determine the best way for the state to fulfil its obligation under the Declaration to take, quote, special measures to ensure continuing improvement of their economic and social conditions, unquote, and to ensure that, quote, Indigenous women and children enjoy the full protection and guarantees against all forms of violence and discrimination, unquote. In short, if Australians were to choose to grant themselves the benefit of their human rights under the National Agreement on Human Rights and Obligations suggested in Chapter 6, a solid basis could be provided in the Constitution that would enable the High Court to be sure that in its judgments it was acting in the legitimately declared interests of Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders and that it was furthermore well positioned to counsel the Parliament to confer with Indigenous peoples respectfully in the making of laws that affect them. If the Constitution obliges the Parliament to do that by enshrining both an Indigenous voice and the right of self-determination, then all quandaries about whether a law is actually in the best interests of Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders should be easily resolved. More than that, they should be resolvable in a manner that ensures that the making of a law for Indigenous protection or advantage is not discriminatory to any group, Indigenous or non-Indigenous and is a balanced reflection of the rights of groups engaged in furthering the nation's interests as a whole. Such an adjustment of the Constitution would also provide for a peaceful coexistence of sovereignties. The Labor government's first commitment on winning office in the 2022 federal election was to implement the Uluru Statement from the Heart in full. It followed up swiftly with a proposed wording for enshrining an Indigenous voice in the Constitution. This was not, however, accompanied by an acknowledgement of the need to delete the racist power in the Constitution. It is obvious that if the voice is enshrined but the racist powers persist, and persist in a form that hamstrings the High Court into decisions that allow discrimination to persist, then this will significantly slow the pace by which Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders will be able to access the benefits of the voice. The voice will allow Indigenous Australians a greater measure of self-determination than they have had to date, but not as much as they need if they are to overcome the disadvantage they currently suffer. There is no doubt that the enshrined voice is a vital step, but the Constitution itself will hamstring the voice of First Nations if it is not revised holistically so that it ensures human rights for all. In that context, an enshrined Indigenous voice should be considered as the first of many steps in constitutional reform and a steady program for this reform should be established. I will talk more about this in Chapter 9, but for the moment all Australians would benefit if we focused on the elimination of racism in our laws. Clearly, these laws provide a platform for parliaments to behave in a racially discriminatory manner. Chapter 8, Part 6, Escaping Racism by Embracing Self-Determination It is fundamental 
to Australia's future as a cohesive, fair and prosperous society, that the racist provisions in the Constitution should be repealed. But to ensure a safe repeal, Australian parliaments and executive governments will need to release some part of their grip on the paternalistic power they have enjoyed and sadly often misused under the current Constitution. The part of their grip on the power that needs to be released is the part that prevents Australians from exploring what they can do for their communities with self-determination. Australian governments need to let go of their paternalism here. This does not mean that they would lose legislative power or the final word on laws, but it would immensely enhance their wisdom and in fact would release them from their own enslavement to a system that has proved to be sclerotic for purposes of the changes and progress Australians have called for. From the perspective of the electors, refusal by the elected to countenance self-determination as a positive feature of our democracy is regrettable to say the least. It would be different if governments were doing a better job, but on too many measures they are not, and it is entirely foolhardy for them to assume that they could continue to use that system of government in its current form without the benefit of coherent guidance from Australians and expect that things would turn out as Australians wish. Overcoming this will entail an accommodation on the part of elected federal parliamentarians. They will need to stop viewing self-determination as a threat. Self-determination is not a threat, either to stable governance or to the power of the elected, although, as a distributed system of power, it does challenge the centralised system of concentrated power, power gravitating away from local communities towards the Commonwealth, within which federal politicians typically prefer to define themselves as superior and successful. But leaving that threat to their egos aside, self-determination may be viewed in an entirely positive light as a straightforward reform that has more capacity than any other to enhance the effective functioning of the state. As such, it is time that politicians and Australians both began exploring what it can do for them. Self-determination is mystifying to those who prefer more authoritative and controlling power systems, but it is nothing more than a simple capacity that we all want and need. It is nothing more than the right to exercise at least some authority over policy development and service delivery. And to give effect to an appropriate quantum of that authority, it merely requires some simple institutional arrangements at all levels of government, federal, state and local, as they interact with communities, and at all levels of regional cohesion, such as the boundary of an Indigenous nation's traditional lands or an assembled community's interest. These simple institutional arrangements are not mystifying, and to the extent that they already exist, we use them every day for the purpose of securing well-being. However, they could be better organised to facilitate orderly and more effective self-determination by distinct communities of interest and distinct cultures. A good example of the simplicity of this approach is the New Zealand policy measure Whanau Ora. Launched in 2010, it has developed, quote, a form of self-determination in which Whanau, families, can be self-managing, 
live healthy lifestyles, participate fully in society, confidently participate in the Te Māori world, enjoy economic security and successful involvement in wealth creation, be cohesive, resilient and nurturing, and be responsible stewards of their living and natural environments, unquote. This institutional model of distributed power demystifies self-determination entirely. It displays the fact that self-determination is not a threat to power at all. It is merely a capacity enhancement mechanism. But it is one that Professor Dominic O'Sullivan has said, quote, emphasises progressive advancement rather than the management of adversity and focuses on functional capacities, unquote. In that vein, self-determination emerges quite obviously as the missing ingredient in the national project. It makes space for us to look forward and plan rather than to react. This is the ideal basis for a national people's voice along the lines of that proposed in Chapter 7, a voice, or rather a panoply of voices, that can be spread out and enabled at all levels of community engagement across the country to work within a nationally agreed project, implementing the sovereign will of the people of a vast nation. It is also a voice that politicians need to hear if they're to succeed. There is absolutely no way politicians will succeed unless they acknowledge the people's fundamental right to self-determination and thereby give us the capacity to organise ourselves to lead the lives we choose. Of course, to bring about that necessary acknowledgement, those who seek political office will need to shuffle off the mindset of their own superiority. This, however, need not entail a destabilisation of the state. It will simply require an adaptation by the federal government to the fact that the people of Australia do have a will of their own, both as individuals and as a collective, and that this will is a force for realisation of the common aspirations we hold for the future. The task for a federal government, if they acknowledge this, then becomes a very simple one. They simply need to seek out the genuine will of the nation and then adapt their sphere of power to ensure that will is realised. This is only likely to be as difficult as federal governments choose to make it. Smart governments will grab the opportunity to reorganise their relationship with Australians. Or they can choose to impose their will as they did in 1901. Readers may judge for themselves which of those courses is futile and which will open the road to the full democracy to which Australians are entitled. Chapter 8, Part 7. Moving towards a people's constitution. Throughout this book, I've tried to simplify a path to empowerment of Australians in their own democracy. I focused on suggestions for a new constitution which would facilitate inclusion of the people as the source of the sovereign will, but with a view to increasing the stability of the state rather than destabilising it. This has resulted in proposals for the three major alterations described in chapters 5, 6 and 7 and discussion in this chapter 8 about the need for reform in four other areas, reforms that would be the minimum necessary to ensure that the three major additions to the Constitution will actually provide Australians with a reasonable share of power 
alongside the parliaments they elect. The objective has been to create a space where all those empowered under the Constitution are invested with a reasonable share of power, a share sufficient to ensure that the nation's project for the future, whatever it is, can be advanced in the interests of all, not just some, and that each empowered entity can play their full, and more importantly, their rightful part in democracy without abusing the power vested in them or the rights of another empowered party. In developing the suggested reforms, I have assumed a broadened structure of the current constitution as follows. 1. The Statement of Australian Values along the lines of the draft proposed for consultation in Chapter 5 would be the centrepiece of a new preamble in the constitution. This could be built upon by community engagement and added to if constitutional lawyers thought more was needed in terms of clauses to create a proper legal foundation for the new state that would be built by this constitution the Australian people's sovereign state. A special feature of this statement would be that because it adds Indigenes into the centre of the constitution, it would provide a full recognition of First Nations peoples, creating a basis for their equality with all Australians in political, civil, economic, social and cultural rights, and thereby creating the basis for reconciliation, that is, treaty, a coexistence of sovereignties and a sufficiently powerful Indigenous voice. The broadened structure of the Constitution would also include two, a national agreement on human rights and obligations, and a national people's voice along the lines of the drafts proposed for consultation in Chapter 6 and 7, respectively. These would form a new Chapter 1 in the Constitution, an addition which would effectively push back all the remaining chapters in their current order in the Constitution changing the current Chapter 1 to Chapter 2, Chapter 2 to Chapter 3, and so on. The new chapter would be titled Chapter 1, The People, or preferably Chapter 1, The Australian Sovereign People. As with the new preamble, the draft content of the People's Chapter could be built upon by community engagement and added to if constitutional lawyers thought more was needed in terms of clauses to create a proper legal foundation for the people's sovereignty of the new state that would be built by this constitution. The new Chapter 1 would also be the ideal place for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice should the people of Australia support that in a referendum. Any other statements of recognition for First Nations in the Constitution would also be likely to find their most appropriate home in either the People's Chapter or the New Preamble. Finally, the broadened structure of the Constitution would include three. Amendments to the existing chapters in the Constitution, including in the four areas I have suggested in this Chapter 8. These should be the subject of a new program for ongoing constitutional reform. It may appear that insertion of a preamble and new chapter into the Constitution, which offers power to the people of Australia, is a threat to those who have enjoyed exclusive power under it since Federation. Specifically, the additions may appear as a threat to the Federal Parliament and Executive Government, the States and the Governor-General. But in fact, while the proposals may specify some limits to the powers of the Prime Minister and the Governor-General, they take nothing away from the powers of the elected Commonwealth parliaments, executive governments or the states. 
They simply offer the full share of a new type of power to the people, a power that is not being exercised by anyone at the moment, and which, in any case, no one is lawfully authorised to exercise. In this proposed new constitutional arrangement, the people are accorded the power to voice their aspirations, the power to say what they want to become as a nation. They can fill a gap in power with something that is absolutely necessary to democracy, the rightful power of the people to express their sovereign will. Moreover, so far from being a threat to elected parties, a people's constitution would enhance and properly legitimise the power of all parties to that old constitution, compared to the power they can legitimately exercise now. It would enhance the way power can be used to affect the outcomes that all Australians want and to accelerate the speed with which they can reach those desired outcomes. Put simply, there is a very strong argument that a people's constitution would enhance the capacity of Australia's democracy to deliver a stable future for the nation. Any country that wishes to be a democracy needs to call on and politically enable the full capacity of all its members. Otherwise, it isn't a democracy at all. That said, the practicalities of shifting from a 19th century constitution for a colonial monarchy to a 21st century constitution for a people's sovereign state will present a logistical challenge. By this I do not mean some sort of challenge in legal drafting. Loyally quibbles about the feasibility of a people's constitution in law will be expected, but lawyers know full well that we can draft any laws we allow ourselves to draft, and if we accept that the constitution is the property of the Australian people and can only be approved by them, then law, or legality, have no place as a valid obstruction to the people's right to craft the central law that shall govern how all other laws may be validly made. The real logistical challenge is in the development of a program for open and orderly engagement of the Australian community on revision of the Constitution for purposes of creating the arrangements of state that they want. This challenge, however, need not be insurmountable. With a degree of goodwill and genuine commitment to community engagement, it can be managed with decency and even create great excitement about the nation we can become. In the next chapter, I will sketch a possible program to smooth the path to empowerment of the Australian people by respectful engagement with them.